Thanks so much for finding us here at the Morning Glory Project. I'm your host, Betsy Graziani-Fassbender, and my co-producer, Angela Washington, and I are ever so proud and honored to bring the stories of amazing people to you. These are survivors, thrivers, innovators, and trailblazers who tell us not just their stories, but how they got through whatever they got through to get to where they are. We hope you find them as inspiring as we do. Thanks so much for listening and for giving us the honor of your time. It is my extraordinary pleasure to welcome a friend and writing colleague as well, Donna Stoneham, to the Morning Glory Project. Donna and her mother found a special closeness at the end of Mary Ruth's life. Theirs had been a relationship fraught with challenge throughout much of their shared lifetime, but in her mother's final years, the two found healing and deep connection. When Mary Ruth passed, Donna was launched into a new kind of transformational grief in which the conversation with her mother did not end with her passing at age 88. Catch Me When I Fall is a moving collection of poems and letters through which Donna keeps her heart open to the mystery and the power of transcendent eternal love that lives beyond a human lifetime. Donna's lifelong experience as a poet accustomed to seeking meaning, her professional experience as an executive coach, and her history as a hospice chaplain inform her rich and deep exploration of connection with her mom as part of not only grieving death, but embracing life. A balm for a grieving heart, Catch Me When I Fall, is an inspiration for anyone who has lost someone they love. Part love song, part grief map, this collection offers another way to look at love and loss and a thousand ways to embrace life. Don is also the author of The Thriver's Edge, Seven Keys to Transform the Way You Live, Love, and Lead. And you can find out more about Donna as a speaker and coach by going to donnastonham.com or positiveimpactllc.com. And Stoneham is S-T-O-N-E-H-A-M. So as you can find her, so I'll hold up her beautiful. I love the cover of your book, Donna. Thank you. By the way, I just think it's such a beautiful cover. So Donna, tell me about you and your mom. I feel like I got to know her in these pages. I never got to meet her in life. Well, I'm sorry you didn't. <laughs> um, she was a really beautiful soul. And we both did a tremendous amount of growing through our relationship together. It was difficult from the beginning. How so? Tell me about difficult. What's that mean? Because when somebody says they have a difficult relationship with their mom, that can be anything from we didn't get along when I was a teenager yeah. to something more than that. Tell, tell me what you mean by it was a difficult relationship. So even when I was really little, I was very uh, adventurous and I had a very big spirit. And my mother really wanted something different in a daughter than she got with me on many, many levels. What did she want that you weren't? She wanted me to be like her. She wanted me to hew to her Southern Baptist traditions. Um, she wanted me to uh, be a Republican. Uh, she wanted me to be someone I wasn't. Mm. And um, 
So it was hard. I, I feel like I was formed in opposition really to who she wanted me to be. Wait, let me pause you on that because you said that to me once before and I want to I want to hang out with you in that phrase for a minute. I was formed in opposition to what she wanted me to be. Tell, tell me what you mean by that. Well, I think that the relationship was so challenging in that I never felt like I was enough. Hmm. And so I had to forge my own path. And it was almost like, especially in my adolescence, when I was more rebellious, it was very much about whatever she wanted, I would just do the opposite. Hmm. And that sort of helped me individuate. Because I think that was the crux of the difficulty and challenge in our relationship was that she didn't ever really want me to individuate. She wanted you to stay in the nest and stay and be like her and be in Texas and be yes. a Southern Baptist and be heterosexual and heterosexual and a lady with a family and all of those traditional kinds of things. Yeah. But you know, there's, there's something funny about that. When somebody says that I did just the opposite, it sort of means you're, you're just as captive to that person's influence as if you were their mini me. Yes. You're still not completely defined. You're, you're not in, in a life of your own design in that way. You're rebelling against a thing and whatever. So is that what you mean by you were kind of formed in opposition to her? Yes, I think so. And, and then, and then it took me many, many years to, through a lot of therapy and other things to really figure out who I was and who I wanted to be and what was authentic, and then to step into that and honor that. Because I always tried to protect her. Tried to protect her? Yes. I always tried to protect her from pain, from disappointment, um, which meant that I, in many ways, had to hide who I was. Because not being Republican, not being Southern Baptist, not being straight, those things would be too much for her? Yes, Yes. Or too painful or too... Yes. It made, it, it made her feel as if she'd failed hmm. because I didn't measure up to who she thought I would be. You know what's funny about when, when you say that, and I'm just thinking of this now, Donna, that, you know, I've, I've met you in comparatively recent years, in the last 10 years, right? And you're this amazingly accomplished person. You're an impressive figure. You are, you're so bright and commanding and successful in your practice, in your work, in your life, in your spirit. And yet you felt like you weren't enough. Isn't it funny that somebody with your level of accomplishment can feel that nonetheless? But I think in some ways, Betsy, it was the not enoughness that drove a lot of my quest for achievement. Hmm. It was like, if I just get my PhD, then she'll be proud of me. If I just get a book out in the world, then she'll be proud of me. If I just, you know, do X, Y, and Z, then she'll be proud of me. And I will feel her acceptance. Hmm. And, you know, I know she was proud of me when I got my PhD. I know she was proud of me when I started my practice. I know she was proud of me when I published my first book. But there was this inner sense in my own self, my own inner critic, which I largely carried over from, uh, as we all do, from the voice in our childhood, 
that made me feel like I wasn't enough. So it was it was this perpetual pursuit of proving that I was good enough that drove a lot of my career and a lot of things that I did. You know, as a therapist in, in my clinical practice, as well as in my friendships and relationships, I'm often struck by how many people feel as though they're disappointing their parents somehow. They didn't marry the right kind of person. They didn't marry the right color of a person. They didn't practice the right profession. They didn't, all of those things that, that they, and then they try to jump through all these other hoops to please or, and, but they always have that feeling that you're talking about of that not enoughness. Mm-hmm. What an agonizing thing to carry in you and and what kind of, force that is to make somebody feel as though they've got to keep the circus going to make somebody um, pleased by them. Even though in your heart, you knew she loved you and she was proud of the things that you were doing. It still felt like, yeah, but I didn't do those little things, those special things, those big things yeah. that she wanted me to, I, I am, it's not even just what you do. It's what you are that she was disappointed Yes, I think that that's probably the biggest thing is um, I don't think my mother ever expected to have one gay child, much less two. So you have a brother who's gay as well. Yes, yeah, and it's just the two of us. And so her idea of what the perfect family and the perfect town was shattered. And so we spent many, many years trying to just support her in her denial, even though it was at at our own expense. By what? Pretending you weren't gay or? By not saying who we were, Mm. not acknowledging Mm. um, who we were. So I think a lot of my mother's friends for a long time thought she just had two sort of odd kids who couldn't be in relationships. Hmm. Because we were trying to protect her. And, and you know, the other thing I think is important here is my father passed away when I was 20 and my brother was 17. My mother was in her late 40s, and we really took on the mantle of taking care of her. So you, you became parents? We became parents. We were really, I think I was always really more of a parent than a child anyway. But it just became magnified. Hmm. And then um, I I think that really made, sort of solidified that, uh, that role of being a caretaker for her. Well, you know, if somebody's listening or to this story and they're not gay and they're not radically different from their parents in those ways, I still think so many of us can have that feeling of trying to please and protect a parent hiding parts of ourselves that we think they'll disapprove of, um, feeling then false all the time because you can't really be who you are. And, and how intimate can you be with a loved one if they don't know who you are? Yes. And they don't know who you love and they don't know what you believe in. It's, it's such a weird thing that when I, when I was becoming a parent, one of the things because of all of this experience I'd had is, I said, you know, I want my children to be happy and healthy and well and loved and people of integrity and self-sufficient. Beyond that, (laughs) how they do that, 
a-okay with me. Yeah. If they want to pump gas for a living, if anybody still does that, I don't know if anybody pumps gas uh, anymore. I think in Oregon they do. <laughs> okay. <laughs> if, if they, if they want to be an auto mechanic or a rabbi, you know, and I'm not Jewish, if they became anything different, as long as they are happy, healthy, loved, connected, uh, all of those things, that's enough for me. And, but that's a very, I think that's a new generational kind of way of looking at things. And your mom who was born in what year? She was born in 1930. Depression baby, lived in the Dust Bowl in Texas. My. Yeah, I mean, there were times they didn't have enough food to eat. So So she came from that background too. Yes, yes. So you and your mom reached a certain breaking point Mm -hmm. and you described a moment in a kitchen. Can you tell me, set that scene up for me and tell me a little bit about that again? Well, um... It was her 80th birthday, and my brother and I decided that we were going to have a party for her at home, and then we were going to have one at church so all her friends could come. It was a big deal. We It was a lot of effort on our behalf to do that, invite all the people and do everything we had to do. And we got a call from her maybe a week before we were flying out saying, listen, would you do me a favor and either leave your spouses at home or ask them not to wear their wedding ring? And you don't wear your wedding And so each of you were then married to same-sex partners. Yes. And she said, don't bring them or hide them, basically. Or hide them, basically, yeah. So they stayed home. They didn't come, our spouses. And Mm. we had the party, and I was helping her clean up from the dinner we had at her house. And I just walked into the kitchen, and I just started weeping. And I said, you have broken my heart. And we'd had some of these kind of conversations, several of these kinds of conversations over time. And it kind of always got flipped and became about me and me being, I was always told, you're too sensitive. You're too sensitive. Hmm. And it started to go down that path. And I said, no, stop. You need to be accountable for what just happened. You need to own this. You need to know how much that hurt. What would it feel like if the situation had been reversed and I'd ask you, my, that was my stepfather at the time, he had just passed away a couple of years before, if I'd ask you not to bring Jack to my party, how would that make you feel? Anyway, we, we got into this very deep and really meaningful conversation, and it was the first time in my adult life, I think, that I was as clear as I have ever been with her about what I'm unwilling to do anymore. Mm. And I set a boundary. I said to her that night, I said, I will always take care of you because you're my mother. And that's my responsibility. But I will tell you, we will never have the kind of relationship that I think either one of us want to have if you don't see the impact of things like this. Well, it sounds like you were delineating between the obligation kind of love, the 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 requirement responsibility. You weren't going to abandon those responsibilities. This is somebody you were going to love and care for, but it was going to transform your relationship from obligatory to intimate. Is that how you might describe it? Yes. So uh, the way that I like to hold it is, that in the beginning, 
It was obligation. And as we healed and began to, and there's a whole story around that, but um, as we healed our relationship, it shifted from obligation to devotion. From obligation to devotion. Yes. Well, because devotion is voluntary, right? Yes. Yes. That's the difference, isn't it? Very much so. Yes. Well, I'm a word person, and those words really do help to clarify it, Mm -hmm. Donna, in a really important way. I I was thinking obligation to intimacy, which is perhaps part of devotion, right? Yes. Because you know each other intimately and care for each other voluntarily. So tell me then, given that background, given your mom's history, tell me how it is that how my acquaintance with your mom is through your social media posts that when she came to live with you and your wife, which is not something most people would predict. So tell me about that and what your life became like and what what the healing story was. One thing I remember so distinctly was I had gone to Texas to help her pack her house. She had Alzheimer's and she needed more care than she could get. She was living alone. So we decided we would move her here to an assisted living community near us, about 15 minutes away. And I'd been packing for two weeks. I was 20 hours a day. I was exhausted. And Julie, my wife, came out and helped me um, get her ready. And we were, it was a Thanksgiving day. It was incredibly blustery and horrible travel conditions. We got to the airport. We got to the line to get on the plane. And I told Julie, I said, just get, get her on the plane when I realized what I'd done. And I had packed all of her jewelry, her diamonds, everything meaningful to her in her suitcase and forgotten to take it out and put it in my carry-on when we got to the airport. So you put it in the checked bag? Yes. Ouch. And I realized when I got to the gate what I'd done. And I said, just get her on the plane. And I stopped the ticket agent. I said, is there any way I can get my bag out? She said, no, I'm sorry, honey. That's it. It's going. And... um, The whole way, all I could think of was, how can I possibly take care of her if I can't even take care of her stuff? Mm -hmm. And we got her here, and I was so nervous because I was so afraid that I would be kind of obliterated by the responsibility. But I made a commitment that day on on the plane to keep my heart open. Wait, let's stop there for a second. I want to emphasize that for a second. Yeah. You made a commitment to keep your heart open. What what does that mean? Like if somebody is des- deciding that, what does that mean in practical terms with your mom? So for me, it meant that I was going to do my best not to be judgmental of her mm. and to be try to be patient and to be loving because I knew our time was limited given her age. She was how old at this point? She was 85 when we moved her here. And that I was really committed to not wanting her to die with me feeling like I hadn't been my best self with her. Hmm. But what was so amazing about that was we never had this conversation. So I can't say if that was her feeling as well. But what started happening was it was as if the more her judgment capacity was diminished, the more her heart opened. Mm. And there was never a time that I stopped to see her, to take her groceries, to to find her phone, which I did all the time, that 
she didn't stop me and say, honey, come back here, come back here. Can I have another hug? Can I have another hug? And she would say, I am so lucky to have you as my daughter. Well, you know, Alzheimer's and dementia in general can be so cruel and so horrible. But there also sometimes is a, a, a blessing that comes along with it. I don't want to say it's worth it. I'm just saying that there's a blessing that it, it's like, I know this happened with a loved one of mine. It's sort of like she forgot to be as mean as she had been. (laughs) She forgot to be the stinker she'd kind of been in her life. And she kind of forgot that she was mad at certain people. And she forgot some grudges that she'd been holding. And it let the heart that other people in the extended family knew was there, but the immediate family didn't. It let her reveal that. Sounds like Alzheimer's perhaps softened some of those edges for your mom. Well, Here's the thing, though. I want, I want to be clear about this. My mother was an incredibly gracious, loving person. She was just critical of me. So she wasn't a stinker and she wasn't mean no, in the way no, that I'm no, talking no. She about. was a very kind, loving human being. People loved her. And she was one of the best friends to friends I've ever seen. Hmm. She had a garden of friends because she kept up with them. She looked after them. She took them food. She made sure everybody was okay. She just had this idea of me for many years that I should be something different. Well, and it, but it also should be said, though, that though she was gracious and kind and loving, she could also break your heart. Yes, absolutely. You know, so, so I guess I, I didn't mean to equate that your mom was, you know, had an edge. I'm just saying that, that Alzheimer's can sometimes soften some of those harder or more difficult barriers that someone might have. And in, in the case of my loved one, it was that she was, she was kind of a challenging person. Yeah. And in your case, it was this rigid idea or expectation that she had of you. And I actually think that, at least in my experience, because I've had several relatives who've had Alzheimer's, and people become more of who they really are at their essence at the end of their life. Hmm. And I think for my mom, her essence was love and kindness. But because of her conditioning, because of where she lived, because of her religion, she had gotten very tied up in what things should be and shouldn't be. And once she moved out of that environment, and her best friend ended up being a Jewish agnostic from Chicago who marched with Martin Luther King. Now, that would have never happened if she hadn't moved here. Every Friday, I took her out for ethnic food. She'd never had ethnic food. We went to Thai. We went to Indian. We went to Afghanistan food. You know, whatever. We did something, Japanese food, you know, just to expose her to, like, a different way of being in the world. Hmm. And she, her, her favorite word the last two years of her life was, wow, hmm. wow. So I felt like I was taking her on this journey of, exploring a whole new continent. And in so doing, the two of you had your own healing. Yes. And she became close to your wife as well, right? Yes, yes. I brought her into our world. And she had never been in my world before. I'd always only been in hers. And three weeks before she died, this is when I knew a huge transformation had happened. We we had just moved in our house, our new house, maybe a few, a month or two before. 
And she, no, it was about six months before. And she sat down and she looked around. We, we live on the bay and she looked at the water. She looked back at us and said, you know, girl, you know what, girls? I just think you're going to be really happy in this house. And she said, you know what else? I can't imagine my two children finding better mates than you found. I have it on recording, you know. Well, I'm going to say it. Wow. Wow. <laughs> That's a wow yeah. right there. Yeah. yeah. That's a huge blessing. Well, so, of course, at 88, she passed away. And, of course, I'm sorry for your loss. And at the same time, I'm thrilled for the discoveries that you've made. And your your book, Catch Me When I Fall, is written after your mom's passing about the, the kind of continued relationship that you had with her. Whatever you want to call that, your your conversation emotionally, spiritually, in any, any other ways, Tell me a bit about what that's like for you. And, and then also, I'm going to ask you to repeat a story that you told me about that involves a certain robe, <laughs> a certain pink robe. Okay. So about three weeks after Mama died, I was literally in the armoire where we'd put her clothes. And I had her pink robe on. She had a pink terry cloth robe. I was wearing it. And I was embracing her clothes and sobbing just to smell her scent. And because, you know, the thing for me, Betsy, was I got the mother I always wanted. At the end of her life. At the end of her life. And then she left. Right. It was like, I finally got it. I finally got this relationship and now it's gone. Or so I thought. So Julie came home from work. She saw me in the armoire. She came and pulled me away and embraced me. And all of a sudden we we heard my mother laughing, both of us at the same time. And I was like, oh, my God, what is that? And Julie said, that's Mary Ruth. So it wasn't delusional. Was it your fantasy or imagination? Because no. Julie was hearing it, too. Julie was right there. Yeah. So we start looking around like it was so bizarre. And I started patting my leg, and I noticed that my phone was in my pocket. And Google had made a movie of my, all of my mom, it was like four and a half minutes long. It was video clips. It was pictures of her, et cetera. I had never made that movie. I'd never seen that movie. So just things that you had taken with your phone, Google assembled them into a little montage. Assembled it into a montage. It was a video. It started playing. Even though my phone was not on, it started playing in my pocket. So pocket dial from the other side. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> of the sword. And so, so I, I, I we just started laughing. And it was like her way of saying, lighten up, honey. I'm right here. Listen to me. Life is good. It's going to be okay. And you know how many of us that have lost a loved one, touching their clothing, going, sorting. A lot of people have a hard time parting with the clothing of their loved one yes, and the fragrance of them or remembering them wearing those garments. And the fact that this Google or God or whatever you want to say gave you this moment. Amazing gift. Really lovely. And so, you know, to answer your other question about around the same time frame, I was Going back to work, I was off work for three weeks. We had a funeral in Texas, and then we had a memorial service here. And so I went back to work, and I always talked to my mother every day on my work drives to and from work. And I got in the car, and I started crying. I was like, and I just said out loud, Mama, what am I going to do? I don't have you to talk to anymore. And it was literally like I heard her voice and whisper in my ear, as if she was in the passenger seat. And she said, 
oh, honey, we can talk whenever you want. She said, I won't even lose my phone. <laughs> and that began this amazing experience of these conversations with her that to this day, if I choose to or want to have, I can still have. Mm-hmm. I had one the other day, you know. Her presence is so real. She told me, I have like 180 pages of those conversations. I would just start recording them in my phone when I was driving. And always with some kind of lesson or or comfort or, but the net of all of it is that I have been seeking my divine mother for so many years of my spiritual practice. And then one day I realized that my teacher was her. <laughs> and she told me several times, she said, you know, I didn't know how to love the way I needed to and the way you needed when I was there. But I do now. And I can help you now way more than I could ever help you then. And she has. Well, Donna, your book, Catch Me When I Fall, is it's called Poems of Mother Loss and Healing is the subtitle, which I think is really beautiful. And whatever one's belief system might be about what happens when we cross to the other side, whether this is literally your mom speaking to you from the other dimension, whether it is what you've woven into yourself of her and comes to you and through your own psyche and your own heart or some other thing that I have no name for. I don't feel the need to label it, but to simply say, I'm so glad that you have it. I know that for me, every morning, I've been given many, many, many pairs of earrings and jewelry over the years, different things. And I wear the same ones pretty much every day because my mother and I got them together. And every morning I put one earring in and I say, good morning, Ma. And as I put the other one in, I hear, good morning, honey, Mm -hmm. every day. Mm -hmm. So whatever that is, I'm so glad you have it. And I'm so grateful to you for being part of the Morning Glory Project and sharing your beautiful story with me. Please feel free to find Catch Me Where I Fall, wherever you find your favorite books, hopefully at your independent bookstore, but at online sellers as well. And you can find Donna at Donna Stoneham, S-T-O-N-E-H-A-M dot com. Blessings to you. And thank you so much for being part of the Morning Glory Project. Thank you so much, Betsy. It was delightful to be with you today. My conversations with Donna Stoneham have brought so many things into my mind. And one is, of course, the complicated relationships between parents and their kids. You know, I heard an expression years ago, you know, if it's not one thing, it's your mother. There's so many of our most deeply loving and wonderful memories and experiences with our parents, as well as some of the most challenging things that form who we are. And every parent has expectations for who their kid will be. I try not to, and I try not to have a yardstick by which I'm measuring my son's lives according to my own values, but to support them into being who they are. It's not easy all the time. They make choices that are different than I might make. They design their own lives just like I'm designing mine. 
So I've chosen to develop the yardstick of kind of what I mentioned with Donna, which is that if they are happy, if they're healthy, if they're loved, if they're self-sufficient, and if they're people of integrity, beyond that, the only other one that I want is that they stay connected. They stay connected to family. Other than that, they're free to design the life that they want and get my full approval in doing so. The other part of what Donna talked about is this relationship that goes on after the passing of a loved one. And whatever we might believe about what's on the other side of this life, whether we believe in heaven or reincarnation or afterlife or spirit going on, I just know that there's a whole lot of things that I don't know about that. And that like the vow that Donna made with regard to her mom, she promised just to have an open heart. And that's what I'm doing. I want to have an open heart about the possibility. And I want to take inspiration from Mary Ruth and have whatever is the last phase of my life, I want it to be filled with wow. <laughs> I want to be curious and learning and experiencing new things as long as I'm able to do that. And hopefully that's until the last minute I'm here. And whether that's learning about matters of the spirit or cultures of other people or new ideas or new experiences, I want to have my heart fully open to all of them. That's a pretty good ex-bloomer too for the end of this program. Thanks so much for listening to the Morning Glory Project. And I hope that wherever you are, that you are finding peace in your relationships, that you are finding happiness that you're finding resolution, healing, health, love, and that all of that is providing fertile ground for you to bloom. <laughs>